My name is Christopher, and I am one of the teaching pastors here on staff at River West. If you're a guest or a newcomer to our community, you picked a really exciting Sunday to join us because we're going to be jumping into a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And trust me, you're going to want to have a Bible in your hand this morning. So the ushers are going to come around with a Bible. Ecclesiastes is right after the book of Proverbs, which is conveniently at just around the halfway point in your Bible. But don't ever be ashamed to consult the table of contents. Okay, it's about 10 pages in my Bible. Did you know your Bible has a table of contents? You can turn to the table of contents, find Ecclesiastes right after Proverbs. And while you turn there, by a show of hands, just out of curiosity, how many of you, like me, grew up watching Sesame Street? Okay, Sesame Street contributed to about 95% of my discipleship formation as as a child. And perhaps you remember, there was always this segment towards the end of every show where they'd put four quadrants up on a screen, ju just like this. And three of the kids would be the same. And then one kid would be different. And then a song would come on. One of these kids is not like the other one. Now, if the book of Ecclesiastes was one of these kids, it would be the kid in the upper right quadrant. And you're going to see that almost immediately as we open up the book of Ecclesiastes. It's just a different kind of book. It belongs in a quadrant and category all its own. Technically speaking, Ecclesiastes belongs in the library of Old Testament literature in scripture, which includes Job, which is devoted to the problem of evil and human suffering, Song of Songs, which is devoted to the beauty and the power of human sexuality and love, Proverbs, which shows us how to live wisely and honor God with our finances and friendships and everything that we hold in this life, and Ecclesiastes explores life's biggest questions. Why are we here? And is there any meaning and purpose to be found in life? Or, as Ernest Hemingway put it, is life just a dirty trick? A short journey from nothingness to nothingness, there's no remedy for anything in life. Aren't you glad that you came to church today? <laughs> Tragically, even though Hemingway enjoyed success and fame, he's one of the most gifted American writers, he never shook this feeling of emptiness, of nothingness. And eventually, he took his own life, believing that there was no remedy or antidote for the emptiness that he felt so acutely. But what if there was a remedy? What if there was an antidote to the feelings of emptiness, the listlessness, the pain, the ache, where you can't ever be settled inside? 
Friends, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is. And that's why we're calling this series The Antidote to Emptiness. Unlike any book before it or after it, Ecclesiastes will speak to the ache we all feel for meaning, for purpose, through a mix of Hebrew, Hebrew poetry, philosophy, proverbs, and insights, it will unmask the empty things that we oftentimes spend our whole lives chasing after. And it will invite us, page after page, to leave these things behind for something infinitely more beautiful. A relationship with a God who placed that ache for meaning and purpose inside each and every one of us. And while the book of Ecclesiastes is deep and utterly profound, what I love about this book is that it also overflows with practical wisdom. It's one of the most practical books in all of the Bible, dealing with topics like money, sex, power, humor, work, rest, relationships, justice, inequity, joy, Youth, beauty, getting old, dying, and everything in between. So for the last four years, our preaching team has been praying and thinking of opening this book because we believe that this is one of the most practical, timely places we could turn in scripture in a day and age where so many of us, if we're being honest, feel the emptiness and are overwhelmed with the complexities of navigating life in an increasingly disconnected, broken, empty world. So now, after four years about thinking of opening this book, I have the privilege this morning of telling you, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter one, as we dive into this antidote to emptiness. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot under it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has 
been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is actually God's word. So what did you all learn at church today? Well, let's see. Life is utterly meaningless. It's full of weariness. And no matter how you work and toil under the sun, we're all going to die. And oh, just for, for kicks, by the way, no one will really remember you when you're gone. What a positive, encouraging Christian radio kind of passage. What on earth is this doing in your Bible, in my Bible? And who, who in the world decided it would be a good idea to spend the next 12 weeks opening up Ecclesiastes? Well, ironically, today as we launch into this series, Pastor Adam, Kathy, and their family are away at vacation at Disneyland. There's a picture right there. The happiest place on earth. And that is absolutely beautiful and fitting after everything that Kathy's gone through. If you weren't here on Sunday, get to share the news with you that she received a, a report that she's cancer-free, had a complete response to the treatment. They are away celebrating getting some much-needed rest on vacation. And you're stuck here with me in uh, Ecclesiastes on a day that my iPhone falsely prophesied would be 65 and sunny, and it's another <laughs> atmospheric river. Happy, happy, joy, joy. But truth be told, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, given the choice between waiting in line for It's a Small World After All or Splash Mountain, or kicking off a series in Ecclesiastes with you all for the next two weeks, I'd much rather be here. Not just because I'm not a fan of amusement parks and crowds and handing my money over to the mouse, but also because God has changed my life through this book. It wasn't always my favorite book in the Old Testament, but it is today. It has moved the furniture around in my life in ways that no other book in scripture has done it. And I believe, although this book is foreign territory um, to most, most people, Christians or non-Christians, very, very, very strange, I believe that God wants to accomplish a work in your life through this book as well. So today, my goal up here as we kick off this series is to essentially give you a map, a 30,000 foot view from above that gives you a lay of the land that will help, hopefully not only help you navigate the topography and terrain of Ecclesiastes better, but God willing, these words will also lead you and I away from empty things to a risen Savior who came and laid down his life so that we could have a life that is abundant, not only on the other side of the grave, but in this world right here today. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 So that's where we're headed. So if you're taking notes today, we're going to ask 
three very basic, simple, interpretive questions that will help us get our bearings with the book of Ecclesiastes. Who wrote it? So who wrote Ecclesiastes? What is the main message? And why in the world is Ecclesiastes in our Bibles? So three questions. First things first, who actually wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Now, if you're somewhat familiar and acquainted with the Bible, read a passage like this, and immediately we think, wow, that sounds an awful lot like King Solomon. In fact, look back at verses 1 and 2 in the passage that we read. It says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So there's this son of David who was king And elsewhere in this book, we're told that he acquired great wisdom and riches, built elaborate palaces and gardens, had many wives. That sounds an awful lot like Solomon wrote this, doesn't it? This is the interactive part. Does that? Yes, yes. But I want you to, to take notice of something that's actually easy to miss in this book. If you look closely again at the first two verses, how many people are talking? Everybody's afraid to give an answer. How many, how many people are talking? Okay. There's an author, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then there's this preacher or some translations say teacher who starts talking in verse two. This is far easier to see actually at the end of the letter. And so in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, we see in verses eight to 10, again, pay attention. Vanity of vanity says this preacher, all is vanity. And then in verse nine, it shifts. Being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So there's this this scribe or this author who has collected these teachings of the preacher and this author or scribe seems intent on actually remaining anonymous. Nowhere in this letter does the author announce their name. Like in books like Song of Solomon or even Proverbs, we have Solomon actually writing his name in. But then in the book, there's the, the scribe or the arranger of this teaching. And then there's this figure that most translations call the preacher or the teacher. And although there's a ton of debate and speculation as to who wrote Ecclesiastes or when it's written, as many scholars today argue that it's written after the Babylonian exile some 500 years after Solomon lived, Nearly all Christian and Jewish scholars believe that the preacher or teacher is King Solomon. And here's what you need to know. We're not going to get lost here. The real focus of this book isn't actually who the author is, but who is this enigmatic figure called preacher? 
And what do they have to say? The focus is on the preacher or teacher's words. Now, in Hebrew, the title given to this preacher or teacher is Koheleth. Can you say that with me this morning? Koheleth. Koheleth, which literally means one who arranges sayings or addresses a gathering of people. A collector of sayings that then addresses a gathering of people. And what's interesting in the Septuagint, which is the Greek compilation of the Old Testament, the title Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek root of this word Koheleth, which literally means one who speaks in the ecclesia. We get the, the title Ecclesiastes out of this Greek word for Koheleth, and it means one who addresses or speaks to the church like I'm doing with you all this morning. So although Ecclesiastes, here's what you need to understand. That was a little geek out moment there. I'd give you just a lay of the land. Although it's, it's deeply autobiographical, drawing from Solomon or the teacher's own experiences and his search for meaning, this book also functions like a gut-socking sermon that ends with an altar call. Now, Altar calls are foreign to most people today. When I came to faith, I got introduced to Jesus through Young Life, got plugged into a church that had altars. And we, they would evaluate a good sermon by how many people came to the altar at the end of the message. And Ecclesiastes is like an intense, fiery sermon that ends with an altar call. Granted, Ecclesiastes is not the kind of sermon or teaching that we're accustomed to hearing or saying amen to, but as I've spent the past few years reading Ecclesiastes, I've become thoroughly convinced that Ecclesiastes is the sermon that our culture desperately needs to hear right now. With ruthless honesty, you won't find a more honest mirror in all of scripture. The author of Ecclesiastes is going to unmask the emptiness of the gospel according to Portland or the gospel according to Lake Oswego or the gospel according to secularism or the gospel according to liberalism or the gospel according to moral conservatism, and if you didn't hear your gospel on that list, it's going to unmask the gospel according to you and me. And in the end, think about this. Is there anyone more qualified to help us live wisely in a culture that's increasingly beholden to a secular, sexually broken, nihilistic, consumeristic, cynical, self-obsessed, hopeless way of life than a king who had it all. Wisdom, riches, more than any who came before him, sex, success, fame, power, pleasure, not restraining his hands from anything he wanted. And yet in the end, this king 
came to the realization at the end of his life that all of these things are utterly empty and meaningless apart from God. Is anyone more qualified than Solomon to preach that sermon? No, no, Solomon's our guy. And so for the rest of the series, the Koheleth, the teacher, there, there's no controversy about that. We're, we're supposed to think of Solomon and listen to his words. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want you to notice something of how the book of Ecclesiastes describes the words of the preacher or teacher in the last chapter. Look at verses 9 and 10 in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. It tells us that the words of this book have been carefully crafted, and you're going to experience that. With great care and precision, they've been crafted in order to help us live wisely. It says the preacher also taught the people knowledge. It's going to help us live wisely, but then look at this. Weighing and studying, arranging many proverbs with great care. And then in the next verse, it says, the preacher sought to find words of delight. Delight. Contrary to what some believe about this book, Ecclesiastes is not a cold, wet blanket on our lives. Or the musings of a cynical pessimist. In fact, the whole point of Ecclesiastes is to actually release us to take joy and delight in the gifts that God has given. So this book is going to commend joy. It can actually increase our joy and satisfaction in life. But then look at verse 11. This is absolutely utterly fascinating. Look at how Ecclesiastes describes the words of the preacher. It says, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one capital S, shepherd. So three more things that Ecclesiastes tells us about the words in this book. First, it compares the words in this book to a goad, which is referring to the end of a shepherd's staff that they would oftentimes sharpen to a point, like a sharp pointy stick to corral and poke at sheep. It's literally saying that Ecclesiastes is like a sharp pointy stick that's going to sock us in the gut page after page. It's not my comparison, it's right there in the book. It is going to goad us. It's going to poke around in our lives. But here's what I've learned. We need friends like that. Oftentimes, the most loving thing you can do is ask a question that pokes. And this book is absolutely going, at some point, it's gonna poke around in your life. Secondly, though, it compares the words in this book to nails. It compares the teachings to nails firmly fixed into a piece of wood. 
which conveys actually the idea that this book is not gonna just dismantle our worldview or challenge and poke at our illusions, but it's also constructive. We're living in an age where deconstruction is the norm. The focus of Ecclesiastes is going to challenge and deconstruct our illusions and our false presuppositions, but then it's going to give us some nails where we can firmly fix some things. The practical wisdom is going to show us how we can enjoy deeper friendships. We can combat the loneliness epidemic in our culture. We can have a healthier relationship with our money. We can learn to be generous and not hold so tightly to the things that we chase after in this life. So it's gonna help us build a more meaningful, wise life. And finally, I love this. It ends by saying that ultimately the wisdom contained in this book is not human wisdom. It didn't ultimately originate from Solomon. Rather, the author tells us that it was divinely inspired words given by one shepherd referring to God. So River West Church Although there's certainly going to be moments where we're going to be poked in this book, I hope you'll come to see that this book is one of the most profound, helpful, useful, God-breathed books in the whole council of Scripture. We're going to have some resources on our, our website. We just have to put it out there. It's difficult. You're going to read things and you're going to say, how in the world is that in the Bible? But it's useful. Let those nails do their work in your life. Amen? Amen. Number two, in order to navigate our way through the profound and often pokey terrain of Ecclesiastes, we need to ask the question, what's the main message of this book? What's the, the headline, the main message of this book? And thankfully, I so appreciate this. The preacher, Solomon, gives away the main headline of this book right from the get-go in verses 2 and three. So turn back to chapter one and look at this. In verses two and three, this is a summary of the whole book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, when we read that word vanity, the meaning can be lost on us because we think of someone that is like staring in the mirror and kind of like, like obsessed with how their hair looks. I used to have hair, so I don't know that experience anymore. Or we hear the word van vanity and we think of something you sit down on to like apply your makeup. That is not it. Some translations insert the word like the NIV does, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, utter meaninglessness. It's closer to it. But actually, both of those translations are kind of grasping at this difficult and profound Hebrew word, hevel, hevel. The word hevel shows up 38 times in 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes. It's all over the place in this book. That's the motto of this book. 
vanity of vanities or hevel of hevels, all is hevel. And what we're going to see is the Koheleth, the teacher, is a brilliant wordsmith. Because this Hebrew term hevel, it incorporates a word picture. A word picture. It literally means a a wisp of vapor or a, a mist, a puff of wind or smoke that carries actually two primary meetings in Ecclesiastes. First, Hevel can mean something that's fleeting, temporary, impermanent, passing, like a mist or puff of smoke. Here, one minute, gone the next. By the way, this is the whole point of the verses that follow in verses 4 to 11, which is actually a poem in Hebrew about the fleeting or impermanent nature of life. And you feel that when you read the poem. We read in verse 4 and it says, a generation comes and a generation goes, but then drawing from the natural world, it makes a contrast and it says, you're, you're actually fleeting and you're temporary, but the sun and the moon and the ocean will still be here long after you're dead and gone. And then this poem ends by, again, poking us in the gut with the sharp stick and telling us, hey, by the way, there will be no remembrance of who you are or what you did when you're gone. Which, let's be honest, that is just like really brutal. But, but let me ask you, do you know the names of your great-great-grandparents? Some of you do. Maybe you bought the Ancestry.com kit and it told you the names and you paid like, like 40 bucks, you know, to find out who they were. But most of us, I would say, don't even know the names of our great, great grandparents. And they're the reason that we're actually here in this moment. So this poem is driving home that this thing that's inescapable in in life, the march of time, a generation comes, a generation goes. We can work as hard as we can, but you can't escape time and death because life is hevel. It's fleeting. It's temporary. It's impermanent. All of you look really bummed out. I know. (laughs) It's poking right now. This book is poking. But secondly, Keep tracking. Hevel can mean temporary, fleeting, impermanent, but it can also carry this idea of something that's futile, empty, meaningless, pointless, or an enigma. I like that. It can point to an enigma, something that feels futile, meaningless, pointless. It's enigmatic, like chasing after the wind. No matter how fast you run, chasing after the wind is a useless exercise because you can never catch the wind. That is the picture that actually the preacher gives us in verse 14 later on in this chapter. He says, I've seen everything that's done under the sun and behold, everything is hevel. All is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, 
This phrase, under the sun, that shows up in verse 3, and you just saw it in verse 14, that phrase, under the sun, shows up 29 times in Ecclesiastes. So heavily is a key theme, and then this phrase, you're going to see it in the book all over the place, under the sun. And to make sense out of Ecclesiastes, you really need to understand what Solomon means when he interjects this phrase in the book. Life under the sun, a simple way to think of it, is life as the world sees it, not as God sees it. It refers to a secular, humanistic, limited perspective. It means a life viewed solely without a connection to God or revelation from God. It's literally a godless life live solely by our wisdom for our own worldly pleasure and profit, a life lived apart from God. And Solomon's point, the nail he's going to drive home through this book is no matter how hard you toil, I toil, this under the sun way of life is hevel. It's meaningless, it's empty, it's fleeting and permanent and passing. You can never escape it. Life under the sun is hevel. Recently, Elon Musk, the richest man alive, who's pioneered like a thousand companies like PayPal, Tesla, SpaceX, Neuralink. Now he's in charge of Twitter out there. He has, has basically spent his life pushing the boundaries of technology, science, and space exploration. He was recently interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine and asked the question, what do you think happens when we die? Here's his response, which could be straight out of the book of Ecclesiastes. I think you cease to exist. I hope I'm wrong in a positive way, but most likely you're just gone. Now granted, Elon Musk is an eccentric nihilist who also suspects that our experience of life on earth is actually a computer-generated simulation like the Matrix. So don't take those words to the bank, okay? We believe in resurrection here at, at River West. But isn't it fascinating, sit with this, that a guy who's explored everything life has to offer, wealth, power, success, fame, innovation, space, the final frontier, would arrive at the same conclusion that King Solomon did. Namely, that life under the sun is meaningless and empty, a chasing after wind. But River West, here is the surprising remedy that this book offers. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. In fact, the whole purpose of Ecclesiastes is to set us free from chasing after idols that will always leave you utterly empty. 
You'll never catch them. You never catch that happiness that you're after. And that's why this book ends not by lamenting the emptiness of life under the sun, but instead with the antidote to this empty way of life. So if you're wondering, and I hope you are, why is the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible? It's to lead us away from empty things into a relationship with an eternal God who loves you. That's the purpose of this book. That's the medicine that this book offers. When you're launching a new series, you're not supposed to spend a lot of time at the end of the book, but it's essential to understand the antidote that's offered in this book because the medicine comes in the last chapter. Every page that the preacher is going to poke at us, every nail that's fixed throughout this letter is driving towards something that's said, an invitation in the last chapter in verse 13 of Ecclesiastes 12. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty or purpose of man. After experiencing all that life under the sun has to offer, Solomon realized that no amount of wealth or sex or entertainment or pleasure or success will ever be enough to satisfy the ache in our souls. Friends, you are created for relationship with God. He put an incessant ache for eternal relationship with him inside each and every one of our hearts. And when you and I choose to do life apart from him, the book of Ecclesiastes is right. In chapter 1, verse 8, it describes life apart from God, and it says, All things are full of weariness. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. But folks, remember that in the last chapter, we're told that the words in this book are like nails firmly fixed, given by one shepherd. And you see, in the end, this book, page after page, points us beyond the empty things, beyond our dissatisfaction with the things we're chasing after, to Jesus, the good shepherd that allowed nails to be fixed to him on the cross, laid down his life so that we might be able to finally find life beyond the weariness that weighs so heavily on us. Amen? That's why Jesus in John 10 says these words, let your hearts receive this morning, this antidote, if this book and these words has awakened and emptiness that nothing has satisfied. The thief comes only to steal and kill 
and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Folks, this is our hope. This is our joy that Jesus laid his life down so that you and I could be set free from chasing after all of the wind that this world is full of. So this morning as the worship team comes back up, we're going to go to the communion table this morning. We're gonna receive the elements and in a posture of, of honesty and humility, we're gonna let the words that we've heard from the preacher of Ecclesiastes bring us to a place where I want you to sit with a question. Are you empty? Are you empty? Are you dissatisfied? Do you feel it? Do you feel the weariness of life? Is your eye really satisfied? Is your heart full? The good news is it can be. So this morning, what we're gonna do during this next song I invite you, if you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, you can come to the table, you can receive the elements. But for you, if this is a moment where you've never made that decision, you also, you can come. You can come to the table, you can receive the elements, but I want you to wait. All of us are going to come to the table, receive them. I'm going to lead us in a prayer this morning. And trust in this moment right now that God... Our good shepherd, Jesus, led you here for a purpose. He wants your life to actually be more abundant with meaning and with joy. And he can deliver on that where our world can't. So once you bow your head and your heart as we pray this morning. Father, we just want to thank you Lord, all of scripture is inspired and it leads us, Lord, to a savior who's ready with open arms to receive those who are empty. Father, we confess to you that we have pursued empty things in the place of you. This morning, Lord, we turn our hearts back to you and we admit, Lord, that, that we need the life that you alone can give. We thank you, Jesus, for letting the nails of a Roman cross, as we heard on Good Friday, be fixed to you so that we might be forgiven. And you defeated death so that we might have hope and meaning in this life. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to guide us and direct us as we humble our hearts before you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.